welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale, and we're getting ready to start the, uh, I guess, the meatiest part of each season of uh, the Silmarillion Film Project. For this season, we're starting into the actual episodes, and we're looking at the wonderful work of our screen of our writers' room, script outlines and scripts. Woohoo! That's right. Yes, let the criticism begin. <laughs> That's right. I it's can't wait. Time for, <laughs> time for that wonderful, uh, those wonderful moments when we look at all of the hard work that the, our, our, our team and our writer's room uh, have done and we rip it completely to shreds. So that's, uh, I'm just kidding. That's unlikely to happen. We wouldn't do that. Um, probably not. Probably probably wouldn't do that um <laughs> but anyway that's awesome so thank you dave so we're um uh before we go just a couple quick announcements uh just a reminder about our new signum store we have a couple uh, a couple new holiday designs that we're working on uh which should be up soon so keep your eye on the signum store uh we've got a signum symposium coming up soon on the tower by owen barfield um and that's uh, uh, a symposium is going to uh, uh, feature also Owen Bardfield's uh, grandson, who's uh, still involved with the with the estate there, and um, and then uh, we have of course the next uh, script discussion uh, for Silfum. So, so you guys are up to episode four, right? Uh, that is correct. We're going to be doing episode four uh, during the next one, which I. Uh, may have on the boards lied about when it's going to take place because I forgot that Thanksgiving exists. Um, <laughs> right. Which is pretty typical for me. So surprising no one. It's easy. It's easy to do actually when you're just looking at calendars and kind of counting weeks. And I've certainly done that before that kind of thing before I almost, uh, I was just uh, looking tonight to schedule ahead the next few uh, sessions uh, of this broadcast, and I, I almost scheduled one for December 31st before I realized that would probably be a conflict. So, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll sort these things out. Um, but awesome. One last announcement that I want to make. Uh, it's kind of a teaser announcement I've been giving this week. We have uh, a brand new program we're going to be launching uh, at Signum here very soon. Uh, look for information to be posted on this soon. But we are undertaking a new endeavor, uh, which I'm really, really excited about. Uh, and that is going to be extracurricular uh, language arts clubs for kids, K through 12 uh, kids. So, so for, for, uh, for teens uh, in high school, for middle school kids, elementary school kids, we're going to be starting a book club, book clubs, creative writing clubs, and conversational language clubs uh, for, uh, for school kids. It's just, it's something that's been really kind of on my mind a lot this year. Um, you know, I'm a parent, I got two kids, one in middle school, one in high school. And, um, you know, it's, uh, this year, school's been having a hard enough time doing school. Um, what has been happening in a lot of places around the country has been that extracurricular activities have just gone out the window completely. I mean, almost everything that my kids were doing, you know, after school and, and uh, you know, through school, um, they're still doing some things. You know, some of their other, like, you know, music lessons are still happening and karate is happening virtually and stuff like that. But, um, but a lot of the school-driven, like, kind of academic extracurriculars are 
just not able to happen at all. Um, and so we're really looking forward to kind of stepping in and helping to facilitate. Uh, and this is this is this is right up our street, and I'm really excited about this opportunity. So the Signum Academy clubs, keep an eye out. Um, uh, keep an eye out for that as we're, I mean, we're going to be officially launching that program here in the next week or two. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll have, we'll have everything lined up by Thanksgiving, uh, if not very soon thereafter. So um, I just wanted to, to kind of, as I say, tease that a little bit uh, with more announcement to come. By the time we do our next film film session, we will certainly have that launched, I believe. So um, that's my last announcement, a uh, fairly big announcement here. So, okay, let us get into the main session here. So the first episode is called The Light in the West, um, and we've got three plots, right? We've got the A plot, B plot, and C plot of this episode. And our A plot, of course, the centerpiece of episode one is the meeting of Beor and Finrod. Um, so the time of the, 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 the date, that is to say, uh, of the episode is the year 340. Um, and we've got Beor, who is age 67. So he is, uh, uh, he's already a senior citizen. Um, and we have Adenel, who is going to be the future wise woman. She's going to be the one who's going to take over for him. Um, and she is four at this time. And uh, Nick, I really loved the idea of having the episode, including moments of like obvious mentorship between Bayor and even the very young Adenel, you know, her and the other groups to show sort of Bayor as, uh, as, as teacher uh, here with, uh, with, with the young generation. I think that's pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, we had um, a few interesting things that we had to try to work into this episode. Um, one of the biggest issues that we faced, not only in this episode, but in the, the following one, and to a lesser extent, episode three, uh, was just finding a story right. that we could tell in an episode. Right. Because you know, it's all well and good to just say what happens, but... <clears throat> For us to have, especially in a, a season premiere like this, you know, it's it's not exactly grabbing, you know. Yeah, I mean, it sets up a lot of stuff, but but you're right. No, I mean, the you, it's easy to think um, when reading the story, right? You know, when coming across this episode in the Silmarillion, that the discovery of men by the elves and the, you know, the, the, the sort of dramatic way in which Finrod reveals himself, you know, with the harp playing and them waking up and finding this, um, uh, you know, supernatural looking being among them and everything that's on the one hand, it's, it's, it's easy to read that and feel like, well, that's, that's a really dramatic moment. Right. And it is, but to think about like, no, it's, it can't just be a, a, a flash, right? It's, it's, it's not just a scene. It needs to be, right. we're going to do a whole episode, right? So there needs to right. be a narrative shape uh, to this whole episode. So I can certainly see how that would be challenging. And there's a lot of setup um, right. in this part of the story. I mean, we're, we're yeah. working towards, you know, drama down the road. But, of course, the B-plot in this episode is Aravel and her unrest, right? So that also, right. a lot of internal drama, a lot of dialogue, not much in the way of action, you know, very little like to be, you know, like resolved or really kind of moved forward by the end of the episode. So I can certainly see the the challenge there. Right. So 
one of the things that it, so I've I've referred to this episode a number of times, and I probably will more in the future. Um, the episode in season one, way back when, mm -hmm. after the destruction of the lamps, mm -hmm. when the Valar are considering what to do. Yes. Essentially, all we had really for that episode was they talk about the decision to go to Valinor. Right. Which, I mean, like, that's a big deal. It's a huge it's deal. It's a huge and deal, obviously, yeah. That, that's something we want to, to showcase. But you can't have them make that decision. You certainly can't have Manway make that decision and then have a bunch of people talking about that decision after the fact. Right. And have that be your episode because it, you're not going anywhere. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, ironically, they were going somewhere. But no, I see what you mean. Like, the, the, there's, there's, there's no narrative movement in, the, in that right. story. It's, right. You know. And so this one was pretty similar where we were trying to find a way to, um, to construct the episode in such a way that we were building to something. Right. And, of course, my initial thought was to have us just build to the, the meeting itself. Right. Um, but there were a few problems there. One being that we were trying to get them into Nargothron by the tail end of the episode. Right. And... If, you know, in, in thinking about it structurally, all that would be would we would just have these two groups on a collision course the entire episode. Right. So we wouldn't be like there's no real drama there. It's just you, you can see from a mile away that this is going to happen. And we've already told the audience that it was going to happen. Because we teased it at the end of season four. Right. So yeah. that's not interesting. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, but it's not you know it's not good tv no there's no real drama there either you know like it's that that that's merely postponing you know the event rather than actually creating story absolutely absolutely so one of the things that it seems like you guys decided to focus on uh was as evidenced by the title of the episode the light in the west um the expectations so that w one of the things that you guys have done to build drama uh is to be looking at the expectations of Beor and his people right Right, exactly. Yeah. And so they they go on they're on this epic journey, right? Across the world, essentially. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've brought up the, the the bit from Ringworld. I won't go into it. You should read Ringworld by Larry Niven. It's excellent. It's a really I'm, good book. Yeah, I'm not gonna go into the example I keep bringing up about that. Um <laughs> but they've been seeking for the light in the West, they've been seeking for the resting place of the sun from time immemorial. Beor himself does not remember when this decision was not there when this decision was made. And he's already oldish when we meet him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it, so it's, it's like an inherited quest, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, like some film will eventually be. <laughs> exactly. It'll be exactly <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's when... this is going to be in, you know, over three-dimensional uh, three-dimensional video chat arguing <laughs> about, you know, yeah. like how on earth we're going to get uh, drama out of the, uh, the unexpected part, the, the long-expected party. Right, right. Right. Um, yep. Yep. That's it. 
as if we've gotten there by that time, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll probably um, still be in the middle of the second age uh, by the time you know Nessa, Wally, and Matthias take over. But um, yeah, or their or their children, you know, just yes, as likely, you know, really, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, speaking of children, so uh, we have Marie has very thoughtfully given us the sort of chunk of the. Um, genealogy uh, that are in this episode. So, you know, these are folks, not all of whom, of course, are going to be, you know, having speaking parts on screen, uh, but just to sort of remind folks of who's here, we've got Beor. So he, we will have Beor, his son, Baron, and his grandson, Boron. Boron will be 15 years old. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so we got 15, 41, and what, 67, uh, for at the ages of those, the three, those three generations. Of course, we'll have, uh, so Beor's, Beor's wife is already dead, right? But his, uh, his daughter-in-law, Baron's wife is still there. Right. And then right. we've got Adonel's parents, of course, because Adonel is only four uh, in mm-hmm. this episode. But, um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. So when we um, when we worked this out, we had we went back and forth on a lot of things. And we wound up kind of going in two directions at once. We wanted to spend some time with the people of Bayor as, like, in their life. Right. right? We want to see what they were dealing with as humans in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talked about having them, you know, like meeting them kind of in media res crossing over the mountains. We talked and we talked about having like more quiet moments with them. And we kind of decided to go in both directions at once. So right. we get the, the early, um, uh, the early scene with uh, Bayorn Adenel and um, Marie very reasonably as she's wont to do brought up <laughs> a problem there that we had a 67 year old dude taking a 4 year old girl out into the woods by themselves <laughs> it's a bad luck you're saying <laughs> Which, yeah in, in retrospect as soon as she brought it up I went oh yeah that's not that's not great we need to work on that and so yeah, Marisa's child safety. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we don't want to have to put like a uh, do not attempt, uh, you know, sort of warning. You know, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, we're not advocating. Uh, that, yeah. No. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, we we decided after the fact that there should be, um, there should be some other kids out with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Besides which, Adonel would have to be fairly precocious indeed for her to have already been selected as his uh, heir by Beor. Right. You know, like, ah, right. ah four-year-old child, I see you're going to be the future leader of our people. Like, that yeah. would be a lot to ask. Yeah. I mean, one could say that, that at 20, that would also be a reasonable thing to be concerned about. But uh, <laughs> sure. For... <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I hear you. <laughs> but also the the the... the it occurred to me that if Bayer was giving an undue amount of attention to this four-year-old girl, it could bring up accusations of grooming, as you know, is a which is a thing that people worry about when rightly so. So yeah, you know, get kind of making sure that she's not being accorded like special attention in that way 
No, I, I really like that scene the way that the way that you guys were thinking that through um, to have Bayor because it, it really shows that when Bayor just takes like, you know, a bunch of children, you know, you know, like it's it, he's just he's he's just a teacher. Right. Um, it shows that. And what I really liked about it is it shows that even before we know that down the road with Adonel and then um, with 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 Andreth, we're going to get to a place where the people of Bayor are primarily led by wise people and not by, you know, military leaders. Right. That there's right. going to be, you know, no leader in action uh, element uh, to their leadership until they get up. Uh, to Dorthonian. Um, so showing that Beor, like they're already, like culturally speaking, they're, they already lean in that direction, right? Beor is leader. Beor shows his leadership, not just because he is the one who is leading them on their march. That's, of course, very important. He's not only leading them in action. He's also, he's also himself a teacher and, and clearly, you know, accepted and respected as a wise, you know, like a wise man of their tribe. And so, um, I, I, so I really like showing him in that role. I think it, culturally it sets up what, where, where we're going to go to. It would be very natural that that element would become more and more accentuated when indeed there was no more action required of them in Nargothrond. Um, right. And uh, and 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 then it, and, and it eliminates any need to for him to single out Adonel. All he's to do is name her, right? Like speak to her right. in the crowd of kids, so that the people remember her name when we yeah. meet her you know years later well he can take her aside also it's not like it you know it's not like that's a a problem um and one thing that i i really like about this that was not intentional at the time but the idea of him passing on his knowledge to uh, later generations comes into play very strongly in episode um in episodes two and three Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's going to become an important uh point an important part of those episodes and we're setting that up here even though right. we didn't we didn't mean to but it happens so it's exactly no that's great and n- not to like give too much of a spoiler for our next session um one of the things i want to be talking about you know so in in our, our the, the next session after this we're going to be talking about some of the sort of the differences in in perspectives and the way that those differences in perspectives would manifest themselves in human and elvish culture um and that that is a perfect example, right? Like this, this need and desire to pass down your knowledge to the younger generation. Elves wouldn't do that. Mm. Right. I'm not in the same, I'm not saying they don't teach their children, but it's not they the don't same. Feel the same. Yeah. They don't feel the same pressure to do it. Not at all. Yeah, like I, um, my, my two-year-old has, and I promise I did not actually teach her this particular thing. <laughs> um, but she is, she told me today that she she wants to fr- run fast so she can catch dragons. <laughs> and of course, that made my that made my my heart grow three sizes because, like, yes, we're on the right track. That's right. <laughs> That's right. On the right track. That's excellent. That's excellent. Um, yeah. So no. I saw. So, anyway, I thought that was really good. well. Let me let me let me advance our slide here. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so. The for the primary event, which was, as you said, you know, you guys were debating. Do you put it at the end of the episode or at the beginning? You decided to put it, put it not at the very beginning, closer to the beginning of the episode, right? The first contact between Finrod uh, and uh, Beor. Um, I think that. Um... Yes, I'm see. trying to remember exactly. So, yeah, where. I, I think I've, it was in. I've, I've got it here. 
Um, yeah. It's, uh, okay, right, they're talking in scene three, so act one, scene, no, it's act two, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, yes, because we had to send uh, Mag- uh, Mytheros and Maglor on their um, on their yeah. side quest. Right, we send them off. So Act Two. So it's Scene Seven. So it's the third scene of Act Two. So it's uh, it's what like halfway through the episode, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. it's right before the midpoint. Essentially, the the Angband scene here is kind of a midpoint break. Right. Um, and the um. And it happens right after we we meet, we contact uh, uh, Finrod and Bayor's people, right? Um, because w- we didn't want to be revealing that the people that the folks in Angband knew uh, that there were men in Balerion before Finrod did, which felt right. weird because they just crossed over. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, cool. No, I like that. So, um, the the harp scene. So when you guys when you describe the harp scene in the outline, um, uh, I like the transition. How you know? So they the uh, Bayor's folks have camped, and, uh, and so you we start the scene with Bayor playing the harp, and it's a it's a family celebration, right? Everybody's happy because they've made it over the mountains, right? And they've arrived at what they're all hoping is the land that they have sought, right? That this is, you know, they're the going to find family. out in the West. Yeah. 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 This is, this is, this is, this is it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that, that, that image of everybody's falling asleep happily, um, thinking on, you know, s- having been celebrating and thinking on their, uh, the success of their mission. And then to, to, it's, it's just a wonderful setup for Finrod's arrival and them waking up to find, you know, uh, this godlike figure playing the harp among them, especially since, of course, I have to imagine um, that uh, his playing is going to be significantly different from theirs, right? Uh, yeah. So a long time ago, I remember watching like one of those old VH1 uh, music documentaries and somebody talking about uh, watching Jimi Hendrix play the guitar for the first time right. and talking about how he was able to pull sounds out of the guitar that they had never heard or even known that the guitar could make. <laughs> right. And I mean, well, granted, Finrod's not playing the Star Spangled Banner, but it it should kind of evoke that kind of awe. Right. Even in just the technical playing. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, 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 it, that so my guess, and I, I was looking over to see because uh, Philip Menzies was here live with us originally, but he's had to go already. Unfortunately, he's not with us now because um, I was going to ask him uh, what he thought. I'm thinking the playing of Beor would probably be more like um, more pentatonic. Yeah, and even just like, the merest kind of accompaniment, right? You know. Um, Either, either, as you say, like a kind of pentatonic uh, plucking, or even just sort of a strumming, um, uh, just to, mostly to accompany singing, right? And that's it's what it's the impression that I get anyway from Anglo-Saxon poetry that that's what the harp was usually used for. You know, like they they sort of pass the harp around. Everybody in the in the place play, plays the harp, not I think because everybody in the place is like 
trained in like immensely intricate harp playing, but because you like you strum it right. I mean, you strum it on the you know on the beat when you're reciting poetry. Um, so it's it's just kind of background. It's not really. So, like, imagining somebody, like, you know, plucking it and playing, like, you can, like, you know, a very skilled person can play a harp would be uh, something that, even even though it is the very instrument that he was playing, I think it would seem uh, almost alien, almost magical in that way. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. Um yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Marie, I agree. There's a lot going on with music with the House of Beor in this episode to show their culture. We're going to get... Uh, Phil's going to have his work cut out for him here in this episode. I was thinking that already uh, when I was reading the outline. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and so he's going to speak Cinderin to them. How were you guys imagining their reactions to him? Um, mixed? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, in the context, right? Again, like they've just been celebrating, like we have arrived in the West, like we're gonna. I don't, I don't know. I mean, are they anticipating? Like, will they be talking about the gods? Will they have imagined that there are that there that they will meet gods in the West? Is that? A, are they that specific in their imaginations? Do you think, such that they're gonna think that you know this is exactly what they were talking about last night. Well, their songs, you know, the night before have talked about meeting the gods and then there seems to be a, you know, it's like they summoned him, right, with their song or or not. Or were you guys thinking about playing that differently? Yeah, we we were thinking that they would uh, kind of see Finrod as, as one of the lords of the West they heard of from the Avari. Um, in fact, this meeting is very much like the story that the Avari would have told about the first meeting of Orome and and the elves. It's not wholly like it, but it's it's there are certainly elements of it. Um, and uh, Finrod is. I mean, for crying out loud, he is glowing. His eyes. You can see <laughs> right. the light of the West in his eyes. <laughs> right. And yeah, <laughs> he's pretty clearly not like he's he's not human. He's not even Avari. He's something else entirely. He's something. Yeah. He's at a, at a. He's an order of being that they have never encountered before. So yeah, there should be some sort of of trepidation. Yeah, you know, like well, you think about every angelic encounter in the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> it's pretty right. Terrifying. Yes. The first thing angels always say is, "Don't be afraid." Right. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, well, which leads me to actually wonder, what stories did they hear from the Avari, do we think? I mean, yeah, though I've heard the story about, about Orme, but how did that story go when the Avari told them? Because, of course, they heard it from the people who didn't follow him into the West. Now, we know that like not all of them didn't follow because they like disliked or distrusted Orme. Um, but in their stories... Um, I wonder. I mean, I wonder if they will have heard any versions of the story in which, you know, they're being put on their guard. Again. Well, I mean, by the Avari, I mean. Yeah, well, thinking about it geographically, the people that the elves that they are most likely to have encountered during Beor's lifetime are probably Nandor, mm-hmm. who in our story are, they are not antagonistic towards uh, 
Like they don't think of the Valar antagonistic. Their purpose for staying was because they, that was their purpose, right? Not because they were nervous about the Valar or like it's not quite like the original Avari. Right. Right. Yeah. As, as Michael else. Dennis is pointing out, they're more likely to have heard from, as you say, the Green Elves who went right. started off on the journey and didn't finish it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so. Therefore, the stories that they have heard are more likely to be positive stories. But, um, uh, but yet the Avari, you know, or the, you know, the Avari or the Nandor that they met would um, be would be telling about how they chose not to go. Um, would they have been warned about, um, you know, the the dark hunter i mean would they have been told scary stories about the enemy i mean they they probably have stories of their own about the enemy so like they it's possible like if i were to think about the way that myth works they probably would have adopted some of some of the stories mm -hmm. that they picked up along the way and in, and incorporated them mm -hmm. with uh, the, with the story of Morgoth yeah. out in out in the east. Now, of course, they don't know the name Morgoth, but the 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 Lord of Light, whom they, well, I guess that's kind of weird uh, that they're yeah. that they're fleeing from the Lord of Light, but they're going to the Lords of the West, where the light is going. But it's a different light, isn't it? It is, and and there's, I mean, I, I you know, we just we just did the tale of Adonel and and all that stuff in in my Morgoth ring discussion, just a, you know like a month ago. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was thinking about all this a lot as we were talking our way through that um, because yeah, I mean, it's, there's obviously those who set out to find the light in the West are doing so defiantly, right? Uh, defiant, like in defiance of Morgoth's claims to be the Lord of the light, right? Um, and to be, you know, the Lord of Light who will protect them from the darkness, um, or who will, you know, leave them to the darkness. That was his whole, you know, move. So when they set out, they're rejecting that. Uh, they're rejecting that identification. But as you say, you know, about the, you know, sort of the growth of 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 myth uh, and the the writing of myth. Um, this is another thing. I, you know, Tolkien talked about this a lot of course um that you know myth myths people forget that myths are are stories that is and that seems like a silly thing to say like who forgets that myths are stories <laughs> but i mean in the sense of a story that somebody wrote like myths are works of art like somebody mm -hmm. wrote that story somebody told that story and myths are told and retold because usually because they are good stories like they have artists behind them there's 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 human genius involved in the writing of myth it doesn't just happen spontaneously um and uh so thinking about the kind of mythic stories that those you know of the you know those who are like the parallel of the faithful, right? That have uh, that have left and gone towards the west, that have abandoned the worship of Morgoth um, and gone into the west. There would be a deliberate reconstruction of things, right? A seeking of the light 
in rejection of the Lord of Light, uh, who set him that that you know the 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 deceiver who set himself up as the Lord of Light, um, and so I wonder. But but again, this is this is the other thing, right? They they would have the stories of the gods, right? That they're going towards, but they've been visited. Their people have been visited by a great and glorious God before, and it didn't go well, right? So, um, it's it's just it's interesting, you know. Um, I wonder, I wonder if there would be some. We don't want to create a lot of division. We don't need to have mm. like a schism. I mean, I'm not suggesting anything radical. I'm just kind of. Uh, I would think there would be an edge even of uncertainty to their reception of him wondering there's got to be somebody among the people of Bayor who's saying is this too good to be true you know it's almost like we conjured him with our song did we <laughs> what did we summon <laughs> exactly <laughs> right um uh that's uh, i think would be something that um would kind of come out in their responses you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, Brianna said something about the uh, about the the wishing on the the morning star from the song the uh, the Rainbow Connection because mm-hmm. uh, because Kermit's asking us to 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 wonder like whose whose idea was that? Right. Somebody thought of Somebody that. Somebody believed it. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Of course, I pointed out to her that that was that was Nessa's lullaby tonight. This, <laughs> this very um, at her request. So, um, uh, unsurprisingly, a lot of my world revolves around families. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. No. Exactly. So uh, that's um. Yeah, yeah. That I think is. Uh, is important to remember. Um, it's not going to be only... There will be doubts and uncertainties because they've been taken before. They're, they're defined culturally as the group of people who resisted... Well, they didn't quite resist being taken in, but they left, right? You know, they, they, they threw off the yoke. They, they, um, they dissented. Um, so... There's going to be a little bit of resistance, I think, that needs right. to be overcome. And I think that that can show itself. I don't think it has to show. Like, Bayor doesn't have to be, like, hostile and resistant uh, to Finrod. Right. I, you know, I think that um, the way that I would imagine handling it, somebody should be resistant, right? Like, we don't have to have a big schism. We don't have to have, like, a clearly defined, you know, uh, central, you know, sort of locus of resistance necessarily. But it should be said. Somebody should ask the question, you know, how do we know mm. that this is not the deceiver come to us in a different guise? Okay. Um, Bayor, though, I think is not... I, I wouldn't think this would just be Bayor expressing that to Finrod, right? I would I would say that Bayor... Because this is another thing that came up in uh, in the end of uh, in in the end of Morgoth's Ring, uh, there was a passage where Tolkien was describing how, like the 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 elves in general, but especially the Noldor, came across to mortals 
that they met, right? Like they're saying, like, well, you can't, you can't mistake that, you know, like you, Morgoth can't fake it, right? There's some effects that he can create, but he can't fake the like feeling of meeting one of the elves, right? There, there is a presence about them that is unmistakably wholesome and and good, you know. It's it's like rainbows, and um, so having Beor have the conviction, have him looking into the glowing eyes of Finrod and say, you know, uh, no, no, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. This is not, you can, this is, this is, this is no deceiver. Um, showing, showing his wisdom, right? Showing his, uh, uh, his perception and his leadership and the people's trust of his leadership, right? Um, but just having somebody ask that, like, isn't this a little too convenient? Um, you know, he appears among us, you know, like a Lord of glory, just as the deceiver appeared among us as a Lord of glory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, asking for our allegiance. Finrod, of course, can help by his response. Of course, he doesn't, he, he, he can't, and it's interesting, it's the interesting moment to do this because Finrod can't speak directly for himself, immediately, right? Um, he, uh, because well, he doesn't know their language. Well, so, there's a, a couple of things um, that I would draw your attention to, particularly scene nine, uh, down there at the mm-hmm. bottom of your screen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we do, so, back in season two, uh, in episode two, um, after we did the first contact between the Valar and the, uh, and the elves at Quivianen, we had uh, we did a bit where Orme was kind of like moving through the Elvish settlement, and it was clear that he had been there for a while, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the feeling that we wanted to to mirror here with Thinrod. Right. Now this is sometime after the the initial contact, uh, but I'm thinking that it probably wouldn't be terrible to have, and I know that we have Bayor um, speaking with him in that scene. But before that conversation takes place, maybe a little side conversation between Bayor and uh, and Baron uh, as they right. watch Fe- uh, Finrod, you know, kind of like interacting with their people that kind of hits on that note. Is that something right. that yeah, yeah, would I, interest you there? It, yeah, I, it would. Although, again, I, I think, uh, you know, part of the... Um, Sort of in just incorporating the initial reaction, you know, like general positive, right. we would, in, you know, yeah, uh, uh, surprise and delight, um, and awe, but some, yeah, trepidation, some concern, yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, mm-hmm. that I'm thinking of is you know, uh, Stephen H., of course, is saying that, uh, uh of course, Finrod, uh, is telepathic, so. Uh, and the books and the, what I'm wondering if we could include in that scene, the first scene, I mean, scene seven, uh, is he wouldn't know their language. He wouldn't speak. He do, wouldn't just come out and start speaking fluently in their language. Um, right. But he can catch something of their thoughts and, of course, perceive their body language, which I wouldn't imagine would necessarily be subtle. They're not trying to hide their reactions, right? So he'd be able to read the room. He'd be able to to, to sense some of their thoughts. He would hear their language. We're also told in the text that their language was really easy for him to pick up because it had borrowed many of its structural elements from the language of the Avari. So um, there would be some words that would be easy for him to say or to guess. And, and so having him utter a fra- like a word or phrase or something in their speech, 
there to just to, to sort of show that process of how he's he's not able to just like make a florid oration in their speech that would be too right. much and would look right. weird um but for him to say something you know to them uh in there which again would like kind of maybe creep them out but uh, uh some of them but uh, uh but would you know also enable him to cuz he would see that they were afraid right some of them were afraid um and he would want to um uh, you know, he's Finrod, which means both that he is intelligent enough to diagnose, again, he's A, telepathic, B, intelligent enough to diagnose what's happening here and what is what they're likely thinking, right? What, what they might be thinking. He doesn't know about what Melkor did. He doesn't know that history, right? Um, but still, he, he, he would guess that they're spooked. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, but he also, being Finrod, uh, would want to reach out to them, right? Would want to... Um, to reassure them. And so some kind of word or phrase of reassurance in their own language um, uh, would, I think, be be pretty cool to show him beginning to put that together. And then, of course, as you say, by the time we get to the next scene with them, he can be completely fluent and that's not a problem. Yeah. Perhaps even fear not. Yeah. Yes. Behold, yeah. I bring you tidings of great joy. <laughs> I, 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 I bring you tidings. Well, they're frankly mixed tidings, right? Don't 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 get your hopes up. <laughs> but fear not. It's, yeah. It's probably not a and and it evokes the kind of meeting that we're that we're seeing here. Yeah. Um, because yeah. anybody who has even a passing familiarity with uh, with angelic encounters would recognize that. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I like Maria's suggestion too. She said he would want to alleviate their, their concerns. So if someone says, you know, is this the enemy? Uh, something like that, which they could say in like a hushed mm-hmm. voice, you know, assuming that he can't understand their language, right? Yeah. Um, and then he responds by saying, I am not the enemy, because he would, he would, he would he would he would get the vocabulary word right he would understand the word enemy uh based upon the connection between their language and the elvish languages um and right. he would have understood enough of the you know the patterns in order to be able to figure out how to repeat that sentence and change it around to the first person right so that 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 sounds Marie, like exactly the kind of uh uh the kind of linguistic work that 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 Finrod could very well do on the spot mm. in order to guess how to communicate with them. Um uh I do like uh I do like the uh the the fear not thing. Um though maybe maybe Nick that's the first thing he says in in Cinderin, right? Mm. Um so we could have that we could have, you know, a subtitle for that. Um um but uh, anyway, now yeah. So Maria, I think that's I, th- I think that's a really good that's a it's a really good suggestion. That's exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking of there, um, and that's what I also mean when I say he's smart enough to kind of put it together. I mean, if if they're saying this right, if they're if they're talking about the enemy and trying to decide if if he's the enemy, he's going to be like, oh, well, I didn't realize they'd know that, <laughs> right? Um, uh, does this, you know, he, so he would immediately be thinking like, hmm, they have legends about the enemy. They've heard of the enemy. I wonder what their background is. You know, so he'd already be, uh, you know, moving in those directions. And that, of course, helps to set up conversations between him and Beor later on, uh, either in this episode or, or, or of course, in, in the next episode, in order to sort of help with the revealing of the history of, of, of men and of their people. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Okay. Good. Good. Um, sorry, let me go back to the uh, go back to the slides here for a second. So this is building up to really the dramatic climax of the episode is the revelation of the bad news, right? I mean, poor Finrod the, has to burst the their decision. bubble. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, yeah, their, their choice is the sort of the, the culmination, right? But the, right. we're leading up with all this anticipation, right? They're going into the West. They're going to go find the white in the West and they're all focused on finding the white in the West. And they believe they've arrived. Look at this beautiful land. This is, this must be the land that our forefathers have taught us about. And uh, here we shall meet the gods and they shall reveal the light. And Finrod appears among them. Lo and behold, oh my goodness, uh, anyone who didn't believe, uh, you know, or who, who harbored doubts is now, once they're convinced that, you know, it's not Satan, are like completely excited about this. And then, of course, Finrod has to be the one to say, yeah, so about the light in the West, uh, bad news about that. Um, and uh, it's interesting. One of the th- one of the things that um, one of the things that interests me, Tolkien doesn't do anything with this story. I mean, not directly. The like disillusionment of men happens completely off stage, right? In the Silmarillion itself. We hear about it um, through false Amlach in the debate, right? Um, But we don't really hear about it anywhere else. So I think this is a really, really fun opportunity to focus on this. Um, How exactly do they handle this? I mean, we've, we've just done a whole season of how the Noldor are going to handle telling the Sindar what happened and, and the backstory and how that backfired. Right. So here's Finrod of all people, right. Um, who was caught right in the middle of that whole, you know, let's not tell the Sindar everything story. Um, now confronted again with what do I tell them? How much do I tell them? Now, obviously it's, it's, I'm not saying it's the same situation, but, um, uh, but here he's got to tell them, Backstory, right? Um, right, and it's there's got to be some awkwardness attached to that. Yeah. It's just I, for him as an as a Noldo, not just for, um, not just for bursting their, you know, their mythic bubble there. Right, and and it's important that you bring this up because it creates a problem for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't have a lot of time for him to be explaining his right. position on all this stuff. So most of the the things that he's got to tell them are mostly going to have to be things that they'll, they'll just accept rather than having a bunch of questions. So like he, he can't, he can't go into too much detail about a lot of things, not because he's holding it back but for the very reason that (laughs) we can't afford to have him show it to them right now because it's because then we have to answer those questions, which I mean, like, I don't think that these humans are going to have trouble understanding where he's coming from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mind melt that way. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so. That's true. A uh, mind meld would be really fast. Uh, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of, yeah. just kind of download the history of the Noldor to Bayor there. Right. Yeah. While dramatic 
music plays in the background. <laughs> yeah. Boom, 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 <laughs> we show boom, a quick uh, flash of scenes, you know, from seasons yeah. three and four. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we and we should do some of that so that we can show that he's kind of like showing it to them in their mind, and that's fine. Um, it just it needs to be stuff that they can just accept on the spot and we don't need to show him telling him, Oh, by the way, I got to tell you about this thing that happened. It was a pretty big deal. I wasn't there, but you know, like a bunch of my family killed a bunch of people from my other side of the, my family. And it was really awkward. It was, there was a and bunch of awkwardness. Really? There's was, this, yeah. there's a King in Doriath who has this big, Oh, by the way, you're not allowed in there. Um, <laughs> but, but don't take it too bad. He doesn't like any of us really. I mean, right. like, yeah. and, and it's not, it's not about you. He's just, <laughs> racist. it's not you. It's us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He, he, he's right. just a jerk that way. I'm sorry, but yeah. It's... Right. Um, and anyway, he, he is mad at us. <laughs> because of this thing that I personally wasn't there for, but <laughs> so like the, and the, those guys that live up north like they're okay, but don't like don't let them see you touching any of their stuff <laughs> right, they really don't like that right. welcome to you the know. west, really, we're all happy to see you except most people, but you know right. some of us really are so, quite enthusiastic so he can't really get into the kinslaying without having them ask those questions yeah at, at least on on screen he can sh- like it's fine that he shows stuff like that but so, not in on screen for our story <laughs> it occurs to me that he would primarily tell the stories like so a fun opportunity that I don't know if it's actually an opportunity and I don't know that we would really show it on screen exactly or maybe the not in full, clearly. Um, but I'm thinking about fairy and drama, right? I mean, Tolkien talks about this and on fairy stories that one of the skills that the elves have, right, is to, um, you know, when elves tell stories, <clears throat> you can mistake the secondary world for the primary world, right? I mean, they're able to create the sort of glamour or illusion of the story, like you're in the story, like it's happening around you. This seems to be one of the things that's happening to Frodo during that time when he is almost falling asleep or when he's something is happening to him that is like falling asleep in the Hall of Fire in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you know, when he's kind of transported off by the elvish singing that he hears. Um, so I would think that that would be um, that would how would be sort of how he would tell the story, you know, to to uh, certainly to the the whole group to sort of help them to see. So what I'm wondering is if I wonder if the actual, like the the trees, the trees and the Silmarils, if that might be something that he would want to show them. Right. Or, well, okay. So let me back up a second actually and say, what's his goal exactly? Finrod's goal. What's his goal with them? I mean, uh, he's so, he's inviting them yeah. back, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, but even that, surely, in some sense, is a kind of a means to an end, right? What is his end? What is his? What's he setting out to do? Well, it seems to me that it's kind of like it, it's almost kind of like 
he well first thing he sees the life that they're living right yeah and like they could totally do so much better like yeah. he's already he's already seeing that in his mind and, sure and and whatnot and he's so, in like benevolent plans to you know bless and encourage them and yeah. how their lives can right. be improved and all that yeah, yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Rian says that she, he loves them and he wants to share his knowledge with them. Maria, yeah. and Marie says Finrod really likes getting to know people and making new friends. Mm-hmm. Hey, new friends. Exactly. Uh, he's genuinely curious about these people. Yeah, like all all of those things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, when you're asking what his what his goal is, it depends on which scene we're talking about. Right. Because right. in the in the entrance in the introduction scene, his goal is is is, is quite different. He's basically looking to kind of like get them uh uh he's 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 essentially giving them his uh his calling card essentially in the first the first time he meets them Mm -hmm. right (laughs) sorry yeah yeah and he is, I mean, I agree with Stephen H. That he's also going to be bringing them up to speed on the world they're entering into, just to sort of just teaching, essentially. You know, like his his yeah. his, his goal is to uh, to 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 teach them about Beleriand and 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 how things are. And as you say, like he's going to want to warn them, like, okay, so there's a forest in the north. It's really nice. Careful about that. You know, might not want to mm-hmm. go there. Um, you know, Caranthir uh, lives straight up to the north. He can be cranky. Watch out for that. I mean, uh, there's both practical and general things that he would certainly want to teach them and want to help them understand, not to mention, of course, Morgoth himself. Um, right. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just right. thinking, and... I'm thinking about like, so in particular, I'm thinking about the bad news here, right? So you're Finrod and you're hearing the men, both hearing and sort of perceiving telepathically the hope of the men, right? You know, they're, they're talking about the light in the West. Like, we are going to find the light in the West. Like, from the very beginning, as soon as they say that, like, we seek the light in the West, Finrod has to be like, oh, crap. Okay. Like, what do I tell these like these poor people, right? Uh, right. How do I break this to them? Um, I don't want to crush them. I don't want to crush their... He's going to see their hope as a beautiful thing. He's going to perhaps even marvel at it, right? Because he knows the Valar did not go to find them like the Valar came to find the elves. And so he's going to be, I think, marveling at the fact that somehow they've received some kind of call, right? How did you yeah. even know that there was a light? It's, it's, going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be amazing to him. He's going to want right. to figure out how did they come to know that there's a light in the West and how whoever informed them that there's a light in the West, how did they, how did they um, not tell them that it's not there anymore? Anyway, like he's going to, he's got to be wondering like, what is, what is my, my role here? What is my job here? If right. you see what I mean, like mythically have, speaking with a, these people. Uh, I have a suggestion. Yeah. Um, uh, what if there is um, uh, what if there's a um, <clears throat> an element of self-interest to it mm. in the sense that what if he's taking the appearance of so I think I think you're right I think he would ask those questions those good questions to ask you know how, how did you know um, but I think also that those questions have implications right um, like, wait, how did you know? Like, I, it's possible that they might take this as a sign that something's happening, that fate is moving, or that maybe the maybe the Valar are, are taking an interest in Middle Earth again. Yes. So, so the appearance of men might 
might actually be like a, a, a might, might actually be a hopeful thing for him and so he wants to pull that thread and follow it and kind of see what he can find out that is a really interesting point dave because they have been cut off now for some time from news from valinor right what are the mm -hmm. valar thinking what are the valar planning um you know Apart from the occasional dream from Ulmo, they're getting radio silence from the West. Um, so you're right. The not only the appearance of the of the aftercomers, right, whom they were expecting to arrive, but the fact that they've it's like they've been sent on a mission to Beleriand. Who who would do that? Who could do that? And how could it not be somehow tied up in the story of the Noldor? There, I, that's a mm -hmm. very logical conclusion. For Finrod to draw, um, it makes me think this should come up at the discussions with Fingolfin, um, you know, when we get yeah. to that point of the season. And of course, arguably, he's not wrong. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, things are maybe going to unfold a little bit more slowly than, than even he, an elf, would anticipate. Uh, but not, I guess not that much more slowly. Right. Right. Sh and of course, so, the, the, the cool thing here, though, just to add one more thing to this, the cool thing is that, although Finrod would have no way of knowing it, the Valar themselves would likely, if, if one of the, if Orame were there, in fact, listening to Beor talking about the light in the West, Orame would probably have the same reaction. Namely, that this is a sign, for, because the Valar did not, in fact, tell the men this. The men got this straight from Iluvatar. Right. Which is what makes the humans different from the elves. The Valar didn't go. Iluvatar came directly to humans in ways that he never came to the elves and didn't even come to the Valar in, in a sense. Right. I mean, he's, he's dealing directly um, with the humans. Um, so um, uh, anyway, that's... Uh, um, it, it's just just kind of an interesting uh, kind of angle on it that it, that in fact like the the fact that humans have not only arrived but have arrived knowing and seeking the light in the west is big news no matter who you are that's big news for the elves it would even be big news in Valinor um, you know if they were if they were hearing this so that I think is definitely something uh, that we should um, we should make much of yeah. So it's important to, and I don't know how much of this is explored on the um, on the the PowerPoint there, um, but the, the I mentioned before Maglor and Mytheris's side quest, right? Yes. So in the beginning of the episode, we have uh, Finrod out hunting with uh, Maglor and Mytheris, and while um, yeah, it's it, it Marie says it's kind of the C plot. I I didn't right. realize that it was that it was in there um so they go off and they have conversations with first angrod and ignore and then with um then with fingolf and, and fingen yes um which i think are good opportunities for us to kind of examine what the elves think about all of this because finrod's not really going to reveal that much about how he feels when he's just talking to men because that's super awkward. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, plus, he's I mean, going like, to want to think it through, right? And talk yeah, it through. Things I've, 
things I think about you guys, you know, (laughs) that's weird. (laughs) I'm trying to figure Um, out whether your arrival is a portent of doom. Let's talk about that. I I have decided that you are not orcs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I have decided not to tread on you. And uh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) But yes, good. Going to your... um, uh, your point about Mythos and Magor there, because the the so the C plot leaping to that because that's fine, um, is um, th- so there is going to be some discussion around Beleriand within this episode of what this means, right? You know what the um, what the response to the arrival of men should be, um, and we've got a couple different threads, right? We've got. Um, Mothers and Maglor, so they bring news to Angrod and Ignor. So they're, they're, they come to Dorthonian, um, and they're concerned, right? The idea is that, you know, they're thinking, like, maybe their dad wasn't wrong um, about men. Uh, yes. Yeah, right, because Feanor course in his speech was speaking of uh, you know that uh, you know no other race shall oust us says Feanor um, and uh, well here they are right here they are this is uh, you know uh, uh, so it begins um, the arrival of them and even though the sense that I got from the outline was that you had Mithros and Maglor kind of distancing themselves from Feanor's proclamation there or from Feanor's speech you know, they're not just coming around being like, see, look, you know, dad said they were going to come and here they are. They're not just speaking, you know, like well, re-urging the words of Feanor, right? Right, because, like, they've seen them. Like, these are not, these are not, like, people who are going to come in and wipe us off the map. Right. It's not, they're you not, know? they're certainly not a threat. And and I know that we talked um, uh, either last season or the season before that it had to have occurred to the elves at some point that the orcs were the second born. Um, we didn't really do much with that. Um, right. And, and I, I don't think that they could really hold that thought for, for too long because if they're children of a Luvatar, that's, you know, it, like that doesn't make sense. Like yeah, they don't no. Children uh, Finrod yeah. would explode that idea. I mean, the Finrod of the Athrobeth would explode that idea in two seconds, right? I mean, it's... Right, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. that's clear. Um, but, yeah, so so basically they have... They do still have questions because, yeah, these this small band of people that have made it over the mountains, like, they, they seem like they're not much of a threat even if they do have hostile intentions, which they certainly don't seem to because Finrod's been hanging out with them for weeks. And, you know, um, you know, he spent some time with them and, and everything like he seems to think they're cool. Um, but what if there's more of them? Yeah. Marie says it there. Um, what if there's more of them, <laughs> which there are, of course, a lot more. Which of them. There are. Yeah, exactly. Um, those who fear that there are many more coming who will be more of a threat are not wrong at all, right? They're, they are exactly correct. Um, right. Yep. Yeah. No. So, okay. So that's, so that's one kind of um, uh, area of, and, and it's really awesome of you guys to be remembering uh, to 
be locating this with the Feanorians and remembering back to Feanor's speech. Again, that's another thing that's not explicitly... In the Silmarillion, nobody says this, right? Nobody makes a speech like this in the Silmarillion when the men come in. Um, you know, like, hey, Feanor was right, you know, like, or whatever. Um, but so that's well-remembered, and I think uh, uh, really smart uh, that Mithros and Magwar would be doing that. But then, of course, um, Fingon is going to... So, Angrod and Ignor go to Mithros and Maglor. Does Fingon meet up with Mithros and Maglor again at, um, you know, up with Fingolfin and, and uh, Fingon? Sorry, does Finrod meet up with them again? Do they go up? I, I was a little confused about movements. Sorry. Mithros and yeah. Maglor, do they go up to fin, Fingolfin? Mithros and Maglor travel from Assyrian up to Dorthonian and then up to Baradathel. Okay. Uh, Finrod, Finrod does not travel. With oh, fin, Finrod does go right because he's staying with the people of Bear. So he okay. stays with right. men the right, entire right. time. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so it's just Mithros and Magor. So Angrod and Ignor are sort of cons. What do we understand? How do we understand their reactions to the uh, potential usurper line of thinking? Uh, so we're we're still kind of working on that. Um... <laughs> One of the thoughts uh, that I have on it is that they should certainly feel a certain amount of trepidation. Right. Um, it's perfectly plausible. I, now, yeah. I, I mean, I got to think that, like, recalling Feanor's words that led them on the march out of Valinor is not like, you know, the main road to Angrod's affection. Um Right. Uh, as he was the angry one, of course, back in the day right. in season three. Um, uh but um, but still, like and, it's and it, their brother seems to think everything's fine. So right. like, like as far as they're as far as they're being told. So right, and I don't wow. think that we should indulge in any over the top like you know ignore being really anti-human or something. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a kind of a, an obvious temptation to do that, right? To have ignore yeah. say some like you know, ironical things soon to become ironical things about, you know, right. humans right. and everything. Um, I mean, yeah, it, there, there are varying degrees of heavy handedness with which one could approach that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm certainly leaning towards the, the subtler end of the sliding scale. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with him being wrong about humans I am less okay with him being very wrong about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, the, the the first thing that occurs to me is because Angron, again, Angron has never been a friend of the Feanorians, right? They're neighbors. Right. He's learned to live with them, right? And to work yeah. with them. And he certainly knows that he needs them as allies. So he's not going to be rude to them. You know, he's not going to, uh, you know, but, but I could imagine Angrod's first reaction when... Mithros and Maglor. Now they are the two least objectionable of the Feanorians, uh, but still, they. But they're going to bring up the most objectionable Feanorian. Exactly, Feanor. Exactly, right. So Angrod's reaction is probably going to be tending towards hostility, right? Like you know, I think, and so I can imagine Ignor respond, as, stepping in as a kind of mediator there, and basically saying to Angrod, 
let's not throw out this idea. Like it's, it is, you know, we do have to be alert. Like we, when we came here, we didn't know about the orcs and now there's this, you know, we, we don't know who knows what could have happened with the men. He could even say some things which are in fact perfectly true, right? We don't know about the, the, the men and what, you know, you know, he could even say something like perhaps, you know, Morgoth has, uh, has been and corrupted them as well, which of course is kind of true. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I would I would imagine Ignor's role there would be since because I'm imagining Angrod as kind of on the opposite as a, as oppositional you know with the Feanorians um, I'm imagining Ignor as kind of a middle ground there and therefore it, saying some things which will be a little bit ironic in the uh, in the long run but not you know saying anything rash and silly yeah. uh, there. So you're you're thinking about having Angrod be more like, more like. Are, are you saying that my brother is just being is just an idiot that he is just foolish? That would be a line yeah. of of approach for him, right? You know, I mean, he's gonna be. I mean, bottom line, he's gonna be grumpy, right? He's just gonna be gr- remembering Fanor and and you know, like recalling Fanor on that day. As I said, not the pathway to Angrod's affections, um, right? So he's going to be, but he's not going to want to just be rude to Mithras and Magor. Um, so I would think that it would express his irritation, you know, his resistance to um, supporting any of Fanor's ideas uh, would would express itself in opposition to what they're saying, not personal hostility to them. And And I agree with you that him siding with his brother, uh, even potentially a little bit heatedly, uh, would be a, a pretty natural way for him to arrive at that or express mm. that. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Marie says, everyone in the conversation admits that Morgoth is the source of the rumor that men will usurp elves. Um, but the question is, how much of that is a lie, right? Um, if Morgoth has been and corrupted the humans... And, you know, set them on to do this, you know, just because Morgoth said it was going to happen doesn't mean it's not doesn't mean that's not true. Well, in the yeah. And in the bigger picture, it is 100 percent true because men are going to usurp the elves place in the world eventually. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, for millennia. But yeah, eventually that's what's going to happen. Men are going to take over the world. Like so like fact Men have been corrupted by Morgoth, and most of them are actively in his service. Fact: Men are going to take over the world, right? And the elves will, uh, and the elves will will uh, uh, will diminish and fade. Um, those things are both true, right? Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of other story, other parts of the story than that. But, um, but yeah, no, this is uh, this is important. So, okay, Fingolfin and Fingon. How is Fingolfin and Fingon's response going to differ from Angrod and Ignor's response? Okay. So, um, the conversation with Angrod and Ignor kind of revolves around the the more. Um, in fact, only one participant in these conversations survives the first day. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and we don't really know what he thinks about it. And uh, and that is like for certain values of surviving at that. Um, right. 
so anyway, the so the difference between the conversation is is the first one is kind of more esoteric. It's more it's more kind of like what does this mean for mm-hmm. us and our place in this world? Right. The conversation between them and Fingolfin and Fingin is more practical. Like, right. what is this more military on the ground? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's certainly more about what the situation actually, actually is. Right. You know? Right. Well, and also, I mean, with, I mean, Fingolfin's the high king, right? So there's got to be a question, you know, they've got to be asking questions like, um, we kind of have most of Beleriand parceled out among us, oh, high king. Like, uh, what's your high kingly plan with the newcomers here exactly? Where are they going to live? Whose land are they going to live on? You know, how's that going to work out? Are we letting them stay? You know, like, is, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I can certainly imagine that uh, Mytheros would be interested in approaching that particular side. As you say, more, much more practical um, elements of the situation. Now, the people of BR are not many. Um, right. You, you guys have them at under 100 total, right? Yeah. My first thought was a gross because that's hilarious, but yeah. <laughs> right. But then you realize that it's it's not really polite to say that of people. To refer so, to people yeah. as vulgar. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a vulgar expression. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't tell them that to their face. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one thing that Angrad, Ignor, Mytheros, and Magor can all agree on. Um, but, um, right, so... But anyway, as uh, as uh, as Michael says, they're they're not exactly overpopulating the continent yet. Uh, no, but the question is, I mean, you know, they will probably grow, and uh, but more importantly, there might be more. You know, there's no, they have no reason to think that this group of men who came over are it, right? So, um, you know, what else is going to happen, and and where are they? You know, how many of them are there? Are there others? Um, because they know that, right? The people of Bayor know there are others coming, right? So, I mean, that, that rumor of that can also be... I mean, I think that fi- that would be one of the things that Finrod would include in his reports, wouldn't he? Right. Um, right. There's, uh, yeah, there's actually several other camps of these men on the other side of the mountains. So... It's, and it's kind of like a like almost a reversal of the colonization of the Americas in a way. Um, and like, sure, it's great to be friendly to this first batch of people that, you know, give you shiny things and all kind, you know, like you know, all kinds of other stuff, like interesting and cool stuff happens. Then it, then everybody starts getting sick, and then there's a lot more of them, and then they won't let you go across your hunting grounds because they put fences up and like this. Yeah, like that's a valid thing for them to be concerned about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is. Um, Okay. So this is so this is going to culminate in Fingen volunteering. He's going to go out and say, all right, I will I'll I'll find out more. Right. I'll find out more about how many they are, what they want, where they're going to, you know, where they're hoping to 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 live. Um what their goals are. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can, uh, I can, and and that's nice because of course we we're gonna have Fingen's primary role. His primary connection is gonna be um, with Hador uh, and the largest population of people. So starting him down that road here uh, makes a lot of sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. Okay. Cool. Um, before we leave there, how do you feel about Sauron being the manufacturer of Grand? Loved it. Loved yeah. it. Absolutely loved Sauron making Grand for Morgoth. Um, on the one hand, like the idea of Morgoth forging Grand himself, uh, of course, you know, has its own kind of mythic, like, you know, to for him to bring forth a great hammer that he made himself would be kind of, you know, epic mm. but um i i thought that was i thought it was a stroke of genius i really did because of the way it frames the season right which i know you yeah. were thinking of uh how of course we, we have the big reveal in fact the only action grand is ever going to see uh <laughs> happens at the end of the season right in right. episode 13 right. uh in the duel with yeah. fingolfin um so setting that up but Having Sauron being the manufacturer of Grand, um, the whole idea of like, and I present this great weapon to you, who is the, you know, you who are the greatest, and 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 then to see when he actually takes up the weapon is when he's going to lower himself uh, yeah. in Sauron's mind, and so yeah. the opportunity for contrast, um, the opportunity for contrast between Sauron's whole attitude towards Morgoth in the presentation of the gift and, uh, and Sauron's attitude at the end when he sees how his gift, you know, the circumstances under which his gift comes into use. Uh, yeah. That's just, uh, that's, that's awesome. I absolutely love that. And that won't ever be used again. Although it, it occurred to me, and I don't know if this is possible. It, it, it did feel kind of, kind of unlikely, but, there it did occur to me the possibility that the um the the wow why can't words um <laughs> the battering ram grand yeah is actually a repurposing and reforging of the warhammer grand oh that he keeps it yeah that he somehow gets his hands on it and spirits it away it away from angband during the war of wrath and, and what i mean you can just imagine Morgoth's embarrassment when they break open his fortress and he reaches for his hammer and it's gone. Right. <laughs> um, I, 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 I do not recommend that sort of comedy in, in uh, dramatic situations like that, but um, I don't know if it's, if it's possible to, to connect them that directly. I don't know how crazy about about other people would be, but we've got plenty of time to think about it. We do. And we don't have to even... I mean, that would be a very significant um, I am withdrawing my support from Morgoth moment for Sauron, right? Um, a, a very conscious break um, if he's taking back his gift at that point. But I could also see doing it another way. I could also see him coming and finding Grand, perhaps broken or something, Um mm. After the battle, right? In, in the beginning the way, of yeah. the Second Age, when he's, make, you know, like in the episode or episodes in which we are depicting Sauron's decision, right? Is he going to mm -hmm. repent or is he not? What's, you know, 
what is Sauron's destiny from what is Myron's destiny from here? Which direction is he going to go? Um, so I can see him like going back to the ruins of Angband and discovering broken Grand, uh, you know, lying there and taking it, uh, you know, taking it up and taking it with him. But what a fun Easter egg, though, right? To have the actual, um, the actual battering ram. At the very least, it has to recall it, right? Yeah. Um, um, I. I the film Grand was cool. It was kind of cool, right? The whole wolf thing looked really impressive, and the whole wolf thing kind of breathing fire, exploding Isn't the gates. Isn't that the thing. way it's described, though? Isn't it described as being like a wolf's head? Yes. Um, yes. I'm just thinking it's... It didn't look much like a hammer, is all I'm saying. Like it's, uh, it's anyway. But I, I like the idea of, um, I like the idea of the uh, a clearer connection, right? Because of course we, unlike all of these other uh, actual productions, are playing the really long game, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we can absolutely. We can absolutely do that. Marie's um, trying to keep us on task. Right. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're right, Marie. We can decide on Third Age Grand later. We do have some time still to think about that. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I love that. I I, I love that touch. I thought that was I thought that was really fantastic. Uh, let's go back to the a plot. So the bad news. So the delivery of the bad news from Finrod. He's delivering the bad news, and he's thinking. I don't want to crush their spirits. They they have this, and not only that, Dave. Thinking back to your point before, he's not just saying these people have hope, and that's a beautiful thing, and I don't want to want to crush their hope. He's also thinking they got sent here looking for the light in the west, right? I I'm going to guess that whoever sent them, like, must have known. So, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, he would have some actual uncertainty, wouldn't he? Which would explain why there's a long delay, why he doesn't tell them on day one, because presumably the whole light in the West thing, since they were singing songs about that earlier in the episode came up during their meeting. Right. And so he's, he's waited for a long time before he breaks, you know, at least a certain amount of time has passed before he breaks the news to them. Right. So during that time, he's got to have been thinking like, I can't not tell them. Right. That the trees are dead, the light in the there is no light in the west. But I don't want to say I just want to just say there is no light in the west. Like you're not wrong, historically speaking. It's just there's news and it's not good. Um, so how is like what is what is his duty to tell? Um, what is um, how is this supposed to play out? What is his job? What is his role? Especially if you know if this meeting seems to be in some way destined, um, as again, I think he would have a hard time not feeling, um, as Dave was suggesting that there's clear, there are clearly bigger things in motion here. Um, Mm. so how much does he tell him? How does he tell him? How does he, how does he focus it? How does he direct it? And of course, something I, I hadn't even thought of before is the fact that they know the world has changed significantly since they left Valinor. They have no idea what Valinor looks like right now. Right. Like they like for all they, they know, like 
that they could just be making new sons every day over there <laughs> and sending them up. Like they have no idea how that works. Right. Um, I mean, presumably they figure it out at some point because we get the story or they think they have it figured out anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, but one of the things that we were trying to do, and so uh, Rhiannon had the in in the the script that she wrote. She had a brief discussion between uh, Finrod and Beor after the initial meeting. It's kind of like a um, like a denouement to that, mm-hmm. um, where Beor explains that they've been that they've been um, following the sun. Um, this whole time that that's, that that's where they're going. So the idea of the light in the West, we felt was a, a difficult concept for them to get across right. in the initial layers of communication. Uh, so that conversation takes place in uh, scene nine, in scene nine, right. The second scene. Yeah. yeah. Right now they do have like, it's, pretty clear that Finrod is devastated to tell him because Bayor is like really excited right he you know he because we journeyed to the west and we 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 were told we believed that we would come to some place that was beautiful that they would never that we would stop dying and you know and and there's no evil here, and sure enough, here you are. And right. Fair's like, um, well, point of order, n- no. <laughs> but That's the- of course, it connects directly to you know, like, and we found the guide who can take us to the land, right? Right. Um, and right. you know, I, I wonder even if we could characterize it as like basically the invitation to Nargothrond can be almost Finrod's response to this, right? Like. We could almost, not that he would explicitly say this, right? But almost like an Aragornish, like, I shall take this as a sign kind of thing, right? Um, when they're like, have you come to guide us to, you know, the land, you know, uh, where the light is in the West? He could be like, guess and no, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I can't do that, right? That's not possible. Right. But actually, yes, you know, um th- you know, maybe that's how and like when and how Finrod decides that bringing them to Nargothrond would be would be the right thing to do. Right, and the, and it's in that scene that the that the invitation comes up. Yeah. So yeah. essentially, um, like Beor is just kind of mortified because he realizes that like his life's mission is. Is all for naught, right? Well, but Their lives mean nothing. Exactly. But that's exactly the thing that I have to think. Finrod being who he is, there's no way he's going to be insensitive to that, right? There's no way right. he's just going to crush that without realizing right. what he's doing, right? Oh, right. yes, your, your life, your life's quest, you know, you're in, in generational, you know, your generational quest um, turns out it was a it was a fraud the whole time. It turns out it's it's all it's all it was all a scam actually, right? He will perceive the thing that he will perceive is their hope, right? This is a people of Estel, like defined by their Estel, pursuing their hope into the West. 
he's going to perceive that he's going to value that um, he's going to I think he is more likely to be guided by that himself than to crush it in them. Right. Um, and that's why I think that's wh- why I'm thinking that's the way that Finrod processes it. Right. You know, that it's not even so not only would he not tell them. Oh, yeah. It turns out. No, no. Like your quest is your quest is is pointless. Oh, not only would he not think that, would he not want to say it? that way or want them to feel that he wouldn't believe it right he would believe their quest your quest has led you to me that's what has happened right i am the one who have found you and you have come seeking the light it is my you know his own estelle right would suggest to him that he is to play a role in their finding the light in the west um right yeah, right. as Stephen so he, Cover says, he does need to say both no and yes. Yes, he, he does lay out their option for them. Um, yeah. But Nargothron is on the table. And so when when we get the, you know, to into scene 11, and, and I'm kind of like bridging scenes 9 and 11 here because they're, right. there's uh, a lot going on that kind of uh, goes through both of those scenes so they you know so it is the fact that Bayor is devastated that is leading uh, Finrod in this direction Um, and that was ultimately where we found the the climax of the um, of the episode Mm -hmm. right because we found that like once word spreads through the camp that this is like everything that they've ever believed for all time is all for nothing like once that news spreads like that's a serious demoralization right Very like serious. that's hard to come back from right and so that's when in the in the final scene that we get with them back way down at the end that's when we get that um Bayor telling them no 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 the quest hasn't failed we you know we've been following the sun all this time and we've we've been following we've been looking for the light in the west and there it is right in Finrod's eyes mm-hmm and that's what leads them to to decide to to go to Nargothrond. Yeah, and, see, and this is why I feel like Finrod has to be himself more active in this. Like he he will know how demoralized. It, like remember that the sentence "There is no light in the West," right? Is there? Like we have somebody. Somebody says that to the men in the Silmarillion. There is no light in the West. Mm. But it's fake Amlak who says that. It's like the servant of Morgoth who says that um, in order to manipulate them into doing what he wants. Um, Finrod isn't going to say that. Finrod is not going to utter the words of fake Amlak to Beor and his people, right? Um, he is going to tell them the truth. He's, but this is why I don't think in the delivery of the bad news, I don't think he's going to... I don't see it as exactly this kind of a crisis because I think that Finrod is too smart and too compassionate and himself too humble even to let it get there. 
right? He's not he's not going to say or let them think because he's not going to believe that their mission was for nothing, right? His question, I think that like the internal drama within Finrod has to be what does this mean? They've been sent on a quest, right? Presumably, whoever it was, this has to have come, and this is exactly the kind of way I think that Finrod would think about it. He's the philosopher, elf king, right? Um, their mission, they've, obviously, they, they, there is some truth that has been given to them, right? There's some true vision. They didn't get, they didn't make this up, right? Someone told them that there was a light in the West and it wasn't Morgoth. Obviously, that's obvious from their stories, right? It's in defiance of Morgoth that they're seeking the light in the West, so, somebody told them there was a light in the West. Somebody knew what they were talking about. It was either the Valar or it was Iluvatar himself. Those are the only two options, right? Or Tom Bombadil, but it wasn't him. So, uh, there are only two options of who it could be, and neither one of them would be deceiving these people, right? Neither one of them would be lying to these people. So, it would not be my job to say, you're wrong, right? I'm speaking against your traditional mythic belief. He would instead be guided by their traditional mythic belief. And instead he would say, what does this mean? What is the message? Dave, as you were saying, like, what is the message for us? Right. What are they trying to tell us here? What can we conclude about the fact that these men have been sent in the West looking for the light in the West? And so I would think, again, that it, we can make this a direct connection to the invitation. To, like, his conclusion is, come live with me in Nargothrond. That must be the... You must have been sent to us. And then he's going to have this whole thing where he's going to realize, wow, we are to be the light in the West to these people. Just as Orome was sent to the elves, you know, was sent to, to you know, to to Grandpa, right? Uh, and the other elves in Quivienen in order to bring them into the West and into the light. And Orome was the guide. So... The humans are being invited not into Valinor because that's that gate is closed, but here to they've been sent here to Beleriand to us to live with us just as we lived with the Valar uh, over there, and I've been chosen. Like I didn't plan this, but I've been chosen to be the guide. Like he's going to get the parallel between himself and Orme, right? I'm Orme to these people, and so therefore he's going to be responding to what he perceives to be a call. Right. So his message to them isn't going to be there is no light in the West. His message to them is going to be not I am the light in the West, but this you have arrived at the light in the West. In Beleriand lives the light in Middle Earth. He would tell them the story. He would tell them about how they came. He would tell them about Valinor and how they came from Valinor and how even about the darkening of the trees. But the darkening of the trees isn't. I don't he's going to I think he's going to conclude he would certainly conclude that the darkening of the trees is not the disappointment of their vision of their mission the darkening of the trees proves that their mission wasn't Valinor in the first place right um well right well you you you're you're on quite a roll and I'm on a roll. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Just I, trying I to think it through from that. Finrod's point of view. Right, 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 right. He, there's there are some things that that I'd like to kind of like slow us down to consider. Okay, good. Um, one, 
being that this is basically the only story that Bayor gets to be kind of the protagonist of. Um, so it was important for us to kind of give him as much agency as possible yep. in this situation. I hear right? you. And having him choose. Yep. And the, I'm, um, in my Finrod, construction here, I'm kind of turning things around to make Finrod the protagonist. Well, it's 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 okay. It, yeah. it, like I, I want to make sure that we think all that through. I, yeah, yeah. I, I just that's no, why right. I want to just you're kind right. of slow this down a little. Hear bit. Yeah, I hear you absolutely. Um, because I definitely think that there are definitely elements that we can we can put all this together. Um, so essentially, having Bayor choose Finrod gives him agency in a way that he's he's kind of going to look like he doesn't have any. Yep. If we yep. don't give him that moment to do it. Agreed. Uh, so there's that. Agreed. Um, in addition, if so, if Finrod offers, puts Nargothron on the table too early in the episode, right? Mm-hmm. And that, but that's like the big decision point, then we have no story for, like, I mean, Yes, we we wanted we have him putting that on the table much pretty early in the episode, right? Um, but we right. have to we have so essentially you're you're what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a sense of trauma where there might otherwise not have been any um, by right. putting the decision in Bayor's hands during the the, the final moments of uh, of their story then yeah no i am not insensitive to the problem that i am creating in that the despondency of the people and the choice to make a positive choice and overcome their despondency kind of was the whole big dramatic center of the episode and i'm trying to eliminate that (laughs) so i do understand the, the uh difficulties that that can create. Um, I'm not saying that we can't like find a way to make all yeah, this work. No, no, no. I, to, I, I hear that. I just wanted to like reintroduce this this element back into the uh, mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. into the mix. Yep, I hear that. Okay, okay, okay. So here's my, so first of all, what I was saying before, what I what, what I was saying before was, I think what Finrod would be thinking. That doesn't mean that that's what we have to spotlight. Right. We don't actually have to shift it around and make Finrod himself and his own inner thinkings and his own contemplations of what this all means be, in fact, the center of the of the episode. Right. Um, A lot of that can be happening internally. I'm just again, I'm just thinking about what the only thing that seems to me a necessary change is I I can't see him just crushing their hopes. Finrod's too too like I I, I just that doesn't feel to me like it would work. He wouldn't do that. Especially perceiving what a big deal this is, and exact, and the you know the 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 suggest the really important suggestion that Dave had before, like he would be more likely to say, "What can I learn from this?" rather than, "Oh man, I've got to tell them that it's all crock." Right? He's right. he wouldn't do that. So right. I don't think that. So that's the one change that I think needs to happen. But it doesn't mean that there can't be despondency. That there can't be the drama right. of a choice. There needs to be the right. drama of a choice. Right. So, um, okay. So we don't have to we don't have to shift the focus to Finrod's thinking. Finrod's own thinking can kind of be manifest uh, in a few comments that he makes, right? right. Um, 
you know, he can just, you know, he, so we don't get his whole rationale. He just says something like, if I understand it right, all that I have heard, then, um, you know, uh, you should come with me and live in Nargothrond. Um, so, but okay, but, but, but we have to get back to the whole disappointment thing. Well, at some point, somebody has to tell uh, Olaf that in the summer he's going to melt. Like, right. Essentially, that's what's happening here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, so uh, said like the parent of a young girl. So, um, I, I, I won't even, I won't even tell you how long I went without seeing that movie. Uh, uh, we actually, my wife and I actually had to insist on watching that with our boys uh-huh. who were highly yeah. resistant to seeing it. I, uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, but we were like, yeah. no, you, you really need it. to like, you can't have not seen this movie. So we, you, we, you should have seen the 13th warrior first. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Uh, but anyway, okay. So, um, uh, <laughs> yes, here's my suggestion. Here's my suggestion for how we can shift it around, maintain the, Temptation to despondency, right? Make the dramatic choice still um, still work. And the the shift that I would recommend, Finrod's message, Finrod's disturbing message is not there is no light in the West. His disturbing message is, oh, um, yeah, Morgoth's here. Right? You thought you were fleeing the ancient enemy the and coming to... Because the, the, what... What I'm imagining, the, like the kind of accretions onto the mythology that have developed within the culture of this people, mm. right? They have come to believe that when they find the light in the West, when they, what that means is safety, right? They're going to go, they're going to they're have arrived in the land of milk and honey. All the streets will be paved with gold and there will be no threat and no pain and no suffering and all of the things that they have suffered in the past will all be gone. And especially the enemy, right, who drove them away and from whom they've been fleeing. The light in right. the West was the alternative, right? They turned away. There's no cats in America, yeah. Yeah, no cats in America. That's exactly it. <laughs> um, you're on a roll here tonight with the cartoons. Uh, so, um, yeah, exactly. So, so they will have identified, like, in their minds, the light in the West means like the safe, secure, perfect, happy place that is on the that is the opposite, like on the opposite pole of the world from the enemy from which they fled, right? And so the really crushing news is that in coming to the light in the West, that's where the enemy lives. And in fact, the land of the light in the West is a land at war. It's a land at war with the enemy. Right. And the opportunity that you have is to join the light in resisting the darkness. That's cool and all, but it's nothing like you expected. If peace, security, happiness and, and safety uh, is what you were looking for, you've you've not that's not at all what it's like. So so again, I, so, so you see how there's the, still the same dramatic potential. Right. 
well, for them to be they, like, well, if that's what the light in the West is like, we don't want any, thank you very much. We were better off yeah. on the other side of the mountain. So there's yeah. still going to be a real temptation for them to turn back, for them not to go on and say like, okay, you know, so they're disillusioned. And that is a way that he would have to disillusion. I mean, there's like, there's no question in Finrod's mind right. that, that he has to say. And you guys had him right. saying that. Also, I mean, I'm not, I'm not introducing something new there. Um, but if we make that the, the the locus of their disillusionment and concern and dis and, you know that's what he that's that still because then Beor's choice to say no we accept the danger right we accept that but then you see the going to Nargothrond is kind yeah. of a fun compromise right you know okay. Finrod can be like well there is a safe place that I can take you to. Right. And I think that this actually sets up really well the further decision that Andreth is going to lead them to make later on. Right. Their choice to I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hearing in my head the conversations that Andreth and Finrod are going to be having um, later on. Right. About like we made the choice to stay and help the light to resist the darkness. We're useless here in Nargothrond. Right. This isn't we're sheltered here and thank you, that's very kind, right? You have, and they would even, I mean, they would have passed down these legends, right? Adonel would, 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 would tell. I mean, she's four, she doesn't remember, but um, Adonel would have, you know, taught to Andreth how their own, like, ancestral, like, myths and have come true, right? Thanks to Finrod. Um, he gave them a place which, because Nargothrond, you know, on a daily basis is going to be like um, is going to be like their vision, right, of the light in the West. You know, safe mm-hmm. and beautiful and happy and um, the streets, some of the streets may be actually paved with gold. <laughs> right? Knowing Finrod. So, um, uh, but but yet the choice that Beor makes is not that choice, right? The choice that he makes is to to join himself to Finrod's people to stand with the light against the darkness. That's his dramatic choice there. Um, and so Andreth's choice then later on can be more clear. Can, we can set that up more clearly and it can be more obvious. Like we need to fulfill, we need to complete the, she's not turning her back on the choice of Bayor. She's completing the choice of Bayor. She is making again, the same choice that Bayor made and explaining to Finrod how, um, because Finrod himself wouldn't perceive it. He wouldn't have any idea. That in taking them into Nargothrond, he's taking them out of the fight because he doesn't know about mortality yet, right? He's just thinking, like, you guys have been on the road for a long time. Come stay with me for a little while, you know, maybe 100, 150 years, whatever, and then we can figure Mm -hmm. out what to do from there. But, of course, he doesn't realize that everyone he's talking to will be dead of old age and have lived their lives and done nothing, right? It's it's part of the disconnect that we'll be emphasizing later on. That is... answer something that was starting to concern me because if 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 he frames it as it's not necessarily a forever thing then Bayor choosing to go to Nargothrond is not an act of cowardice in hiding from right from Morgoth um so that yeah. that's good yeah um, no, it, it, it would just be it, yeah yeah no exactly it, it, it would be an act of courage on Bayor's part right we mm-hmm. will stay we will side with the light to help the darkness. Even that, you know, what you're saying, like that reveal about like, this is the light in the West. He can confirm because there will be some who will be saying, 
so it's all been a lie, right? There is there there is no light in the West, right? There's the you right. know the the the, the land. I mean, there are cats in America, right? This you know this this picture that we've right. had, um, turn it's it's all it's all it turns out to all not be true, right? right. And Bayor will be the one who will say no. Like we came, some of you know we have come looking for the light in the West because we sought security, because we sought peace, right. because we, we and now we find. We've been called to the light in the West in order to stand with the light against the darkness. And that's, that's a better calling. That's a higher calling than merely to shelter within the light. Um, so, yeah, Bear can totally make that speech with all sincerity. And Finrod can invite him to Nargothrond, feeling it to be, like, step one of that plan, right. basically. You right. know, here They've made allies. Um, one, one other little question, and that's... Are you saying that he doesn't tell them about Valorant? Because, like, they've been searching for this land of light in the West where there's no death and all that. And he knows a place that's like that, but he doesn't tell them about No, I mean, I, obviously, Valorant is not a land of light anymore right. as far as he knows. But right. does yeah. he not tell them about no, it? No, I think he can tell them, but I just – I don't th- – I, I, I think he can tell them, though I'm not sure – I am not sure from his point of view. Like, he's not going to hide it, right? Um, right. Uh, but again, I'm thinking, I'm putting myself in Finrod's place. The conclusion he is going to come to is, if they have been sent looking for the light in the West, and it's obviously impossible for them to get to Valinor, and, right. you know, which, as you say, far as I know, it's not so bright over there anyway anymore. Um Therefore, I, I must conclude it is to Beleriand that they have been sent. Beleriand is okay. their destination. Um, so his focus with when it comes to Valinor is not the lack of light there, but the inaccessibility. That's right. the important. Yeah, he, he will say like there is. Uh, yes, like there is off to the sea in the west, um, across the sea in the west. Yes, there is. Right. There is. Uh, there is another land. Um, that could be one of the options that he brings up. He he could say, "Look, I could take you to the to the shore, you know, but there's no like there's a vast sea there that no one can cross." Right. Which of course is something completely outside of their own experience because they're thinking, like, is it like a big river? Right, exactly. Like, is that... We've crossed a bunch of rivers. Have you even seen the Anduin Finrod? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um, he hasn't. Yeah, no, he hasn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, they lost their horse at Tharbad on their way over here. But um, yeah. uh, anyway, I know that's not the Anduin. It's the Grey Flood still. Point is, uh, okay, so is he going to talk about it? Yeah, he's going to. But I think we kind of could see how it goes, right? Like, we could skip that. I mean, we, it yeah. doesn't have to happen in this episode like it doesn't have to be a feature of this episode that whole conversation right. because i think he would be sufficiently convinced that beleriand is where they are being sent um that that's what he would emphasize like he, of course he's going to reveal he's going to want to teach them and of course that's another really wonderful thing um i would love to establish a visual parallel at one point a visual parallel between Beor and the four and the and the the preschool class right of the of the people like him and Adonel and the other children picking herbs mm-hmm. and things in the woods and Finrod with Beor and the other adults yeah 
right? Yeah. Finrod would want to teach them like Beor wants to teach, you know, the children. Um, okay. But, um, but I don't think that he would think, Finrod would think, that it's like essential right now. Again, like because they can't get I me, mean, he could offer to take them, but like he, why would he even do it? Like he knows it's not possible, right? He knows they can't sail across. So he's not going to get their hopes up and be like, well, we'll see, you know, maybe when we get there, there'll be a, an island. Somebody will have sent an island in time to catch. I mean, he can't rule that out, I suppose, right? Maybe they are mm-hmm. being called to Valinor. Um, uh, so Presumably, I guess, though, that if that if if he if that's going to happen, he's going to know the Valar can handle doing that without him having to bring it, them to the beach. Although that's another thing is like it is like if he's questioning what his role in their quest is, that is a potential conclusion that he could draw. And so, uh, like, obviously, he's got nobody to talk about that with. So. Right. You know, um, if he can just br- bring up the uncrossable sea, at, at least then that gives us some reason why he's not like it, why he's he's not talking to them a lot about. Yeah. Uh, about Valor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And oh, exactly. I mean, it, he, he, yeah, he doesn't have to hide it. But again, I don't think it's going to be sent. And especially if we're not having him be the. The focal, if we want to keep Bayor as the protagonist of the episode, um, I, I, I think it's very possible that Valinor needn't necessarily be explicitly discussed, or at least not much, in this uh, in this episode. Um, yeah. Okay. Does that does does yeah. does, does does that preserve the drama sufficiently? Yeah, no, we're we're fine there. I, okay, you know. Okay. Yeah, but no, I mean, I because because I I do really like the shape of the episode. I mean, I'm 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 like trying to find. I mean, I as I say, I can't imagine Finrod saying, "Yeah, give up, folks. There is no light in the west." I can't imagine that. It uh, right. I can't reconcile okay. that with Finrod, but I want to preserve the structure, and I think right. the. I think the, uh, by the way, there are cats in America is probably the best way to do that, especially okay. since in my mind, that actually makes Bayor's decision at the end even more dramatic Heroic. because it's it's actually an act of courage, right? Not only yeah. of hope, but also of courage. Um, of course, he's never going to see combat ever, but that's okay. Right. We, we, that's fine. He doesn't know that. Right? <laughs> uh, none of them do. I mean, again, n- not even Finrod, right? N- none of yeah. them... So that's going to be the little wrench in the in the spanner in the works. <laughs> that uh, you know, mortality as a spanner in the works is going to yeah. emerge uh, next time as a bit of a startlement. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we've not talked about the B plot at all, which is Arathel and Gondolin. Um, my. Uh, um, Let's wait until next time to do that. Okay. <laughs> or okay. She is the she is the ape the ape. That's of just the what I was thinking. Episode. It's perfect. Okay. It's perfect. Right. We'll save it for the well, not the next session because moving forward in uh, and the frame story that too. Questions for next time. So <laughs> questions for next time. Our next episode will be Thursday, December third. Um, okay. So we're gonna be we're we're gonna give some more time for 
you know, revision and thought there of episode two. Um, so uh, uh, next time we're going to be talking about the worldview of men and elves. Uh, and I, so I have, I have uh, two questions, sort of, they're long. Uh, what do you think are some of the most important differences in perspective that would result from the differences in lifespans between men and elves? How would these differences affect their cultures in ways that a member of the other culture would notice, right? So I really want to be thinking through, we've talked about this stuff off and on at different times, right? But it's, I think it's really important for us to be dealing thematic. And here, of course, I want to be remembering our theme of change, right? And how we can emphasize that. We, I want to make sure we're not, when we're doing interactions between the elves and the men, which of course is going to be a major focal point of this season, I want to make sure that we're not making too many assumptions, right? Um, that they're going to be seeing. I mean, like we already kind of encountered that to some extent here, right? This idea of like, you know, Finrod thinking that a, a you know, 150 year stay in Nargothrond is a mere hiatus for them to gather their strength, Right. Um, whereas, of course, in fact, it turns out to be a, you know, a multi-generational refuge and sheltering of the people. And from their perspective, or from that human perspective, so memorably voiced by Hur and, and Hur and Gondolin later on, um, you know, a, a wasting of their lives. Right. Uh, and their opportunities. So. Um, that's one example that just arose in this episode, right? And I want to make sure that we're thinking through things like that. So what, how would their cultures be different when they encounter each other? What things are they going to notice that are going to be as a result of this fundamental difference between elves and men? Uh, so I really want to be thinking that through. And then what other cultural differences are likely to have resulted from the very different histories of the Noldor and the men who come to Beleriand? How, again, wh- what's going to strike them? I, you know, in this, for this whole conversation, I want us to be thinking alternatively about the elf perspective and about the human perspective. What kinds of things are they going to notice, right? What kinds of things are going to jump out at them? Um, Which either have to do directly with their whole perspective on the world that comes from their mortality or immortality. And also, um, I mean, other, you know, the, the Noldor obviously uh, have this history, right? You know, with Morgoth and, and their journey and their wars, um, and we have this other nomadic people who have been on this quest and what is their, and their mythology and their, um, they don't exactly have a religion, but anyway, like, you know, what do we say? Of course, like the Noldor having lived with the Valar and been taught, you know, by the Valar and stuff, huge difference in how they relate to the world, right? What are some of those differences and how would they be noticeable, um, uh, for uh, uh, to to the humans, what ways would would that show up? So that's what we're going to do next time uh, as a, sort of an in between session between episodes one and two. When we come back to episode two, we'll start with the B plot here in episode one, so which is Aravel and her unrest in Gondolin. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll be looking at really kind of the whole Aravel story there, um, and we'll talk about the we'll talk about the frame too and the way that you guys are building up the frame there. There's less, of course, because there's only snippets of the frame, um, uh, but we'll we'll talk about that. Okay, so that's the plan for next time. Awesome, thanks everybody. This was a really this was a really fun discussion. I thought this was this was uh, this was this was very fruitful. So uh, thanks everybody. So thanks everybody for joining me. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.